Welcome to View from the C-Suite, where we have candid conversations with female executives about key business challenges, career advice, and more. This series is brought to you by Wong Duty, the global experience and design unit for Infosys. I'm Skylar Matson, your host and president of Wong Duty. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our global audience tuning in. Welcome to the ninth episode of View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. I'm Skylar Matson, President of Wong Duty, the Global Experience and Design Unit for Infosys. Today we're talking talent, and I tell you, my meeting before this webinar was about talent, my meeting after this webinar will be about talent. It seems that so many of the current challenges facing business across all industries is coming down to recruiting new talent and retaining the precious talent that we have. A federal data released earlier this month reported 4.3 million people quit their jobs in January alone. Last year, 48 million people quit their jobs, which was an annual record. But people aren't leaving the job market to just sit on the sidelines. They're leaving for better opportunities, whether that's more money, uh, a more flexible work environment, uh, maybe it's for more purpose-driven work. As business leaders, we have the chance to attract this huge talent pool that's looking for something better, something more rewarding or for fulfilling. So I don't personally see this as the great resignation, but if played right, the great opportunity. I am thrilled to be joined by two phenomenal leaders today who are indeed seizing this opportunity. Um, before I introduce them, a quick reminder to our amazing audience, we'll be taking your questions during the last 15 minutes of our 45-minute program. You do not have to wait until the end to start submitting them. If something sparks your mind, go ahead and put it right in the Q&A uh, at the bottom here in Zoom. And we'd also love you to join us on Twitter. If you use this hashtag, the one we always use, uh, Women Empower, we'll be able to locate your posts after the show and we can comment on them and we can keep the conversation going. Okay. Some introductions, and then we're diving in. Uh, I'm so honored to introduce Jill Andrews, the Interim VP and Chief Marketing Officer of Arizona State University, where she's setting the creative strategy that brings the ASU brand to life. ASU is ranked number one in the country for innovation. There are so many amazing things going on at this university. And Jill's team have earned regional and national recognition, including Emmys, Case Circle of Excellence Awards, and multiple President's Awards for innovation honors. She's truly a purpose-driven leader who lives ASU's mission of inclusivity, which I cannot wait to talk to her more about. Thank you for being here, Jill. Glad to be here. Thank you. I'm also so excited to welcome Jennifer Tilson, CIO of Direct TV, where she leads the video technology strategy and systems, serving the frontline reps and customers of Direct TV. Previously at AT&T, Jennifer was an iconic launch leader driving AT&T's exclusive IT implementation of the first ever iPhone. Remember that, everyone? She's received numerous awards, including Atlanta Mobility Stars, Best Woman Professional of the Year, and Atlanta Technology Professional of the Year nominee. Thank you so much for being here, Jennifer. For having me. 
So I love that I have this marketer and the creative side and I've got this technology side. You know, at Wong Beauty, we sort of infuse both of them. And I think it's going to be really interesting to get your unique perspective. So we're going to dive right into this hot topic, the one we're all talking about. Um, Jill, you've been at ASU for 20 years. And so I do want to turn to you for this long-term perspective. How has attracting and retaining talent changed? What's been different for you the past couple of years? Yeah, it, it definitely is a, a major shift and a major change in experience. Um, you know, we are, we are experiencing the great resignation like many, many organizations. Um, we can experience it a little bit to, I think, a higher degree because we are a nonprofit public organization. So as companies are able to change compensation packages, things like that. We don't, we're not able to change that as quickly. And so we have to really look at the culture and the mission uh, to attract a top talent pool. Um, you know, it is a interesting time to be ex experiencing this. We are, we are experiencing smaller pools. Uh, so we have to be much more thoughtful in how we're recruiting. Um, and then just also, as we think about how we're building our um, workforce and our talent team and making sure that we're delivering on representing the communities in which we serve. So we're balancing that as well too. So it's a very complex time, um, more complex than we've ever experienced in the past, but uh, something that we're up for the challenge um, and we can keep working through as a team. I think you bring up such an important point. Um, it's not always about the highest salary. People are also looking, maybe even more than ever now, for other components. How do you how do you share when you're trying to recruit talent what it is that's special about your culture, what it is beyond the paycheck that makes being at ASU a rewarding career? Yeah. So, and I, this is something that is deep deep in my heart. Um, obviously, I've made a a career uh, of this at ASU, and it's um, what I consider my life's work. And I have many colleagues who consider it that same same thing. When working at ASU, we're we're constantly sharing the story of many people think about, okay, well, yeah, you're you're offering degrees, um, but really, what we're doing is we're changing lives. We're changing lives of the students that are directly enrolling uh, at the university. We're changing the state of Arizona through our research and our social embeddedness, where we're actively improving the economy and building the economy of Arizona in the future. Um, and we're changing the face of higher education. This is why we're known for number one in innovation, in that we're challenging the whole industry to think about what higher education looks like in the future and how we can better serve uh, this, the United States, the, the health of democracy, there's all sorts of things that we're working towards more than just delivering a great brochure or web experience. So oftentimes we're talking about that with, with those who are coming to ASU and considering it um, and really sharing the story that not only is ASU just generally a special place to be, but it is also an incredibly special moment in time in the history of ASU to be a part of it. And to be a part of something that will last generations, that will serve my kids, my grandkids, in how the health of the state is and how education operates in the future. 
Mm, thank you. I want to come back to that because I think we can have a whole conversation around purpose-driven work and how you use that as both a recruitment and a retention uh, point of view. But I do, Jennifer, want to bring you into the conversation from the technology side. Are the dynamics different in tech than they are in marketing and creative? Um, are you seeing challenges that you've never seen before in recruitment and retention? What's the landscape like at DirecTV? I heard some things in what Jill said that really resonate with us too. Culture is important. Culture is really making a huge difference um, in how people want to think about how they work. Um, I, I think that has changed over the last few years. I think people always want to feel good about where they work and who they work with. But particularly we're all we're in a remote mode, figuring out how you're going to work in that environment. How are you going to connect with people when you're all sitting at home? I do think that put a little bit more importance on the on the culture aspect. Also, inclusion. Do, you know, do do I see people that look like me, that think like me, that want to do the things that I want to do? I think those are pretty universal. Um, from a challenge perspective, there's it's a hot market right now. There are a lot of um, a lot of jobs out there. There are a lot of really good paying jobs. You know, we can compete in a in a lot of those. Um, but what we also try to do is talk about things other than the full comp package. Um, and what else are we doing? We're in a, you know, when we separated from AT&T, we created this unique opportunity where it's almost like a startup, even though it was an existing company, we're rebuilding it. The IT team had to, to completely rebuild the organization and all the processes and we're, we're building new technology. So it's good work. And I think that also is what attracts people. People like the high energy work. Um, good dynamics, but I think a culture where they can work um, and feel challenged, but also find ways to connect with people. I think that's that's become incredibly important, and we're having to find new ways to get them connected as they come in because they're, we're not seeing them face to face like we used to. I'd love to dig into that a little bit because I think it's so interesting. We're not coming into the office as much. We're starting to, but it likely will not return to where it was. Yet, culture is more important than ever. And I think establishing a hybrid culture is really challenging. There's so many things that we lean into when we're in the office, just gatherings that we can do, celebrations we have, you know, for the small things and the big things. And that's so much harder in this virtual world. Have you have you come across anything that you think's been helpful in culture, since we're talking about culture being so important in both recruitment and retention that you've been able to do in this hybrid environment that might be interesting for our audience to hear about? Yeah, I, I think I have. And I think time will tell how effective it is. I think what, what we're realizing is, you know, different things matter to, to, to people, right? And I, I think a lot about, you know, when I was early in my career, these relationships that I built, um, that we work, learned some hard lessons together, worked through some hard things side by side, finding ways to connect people virtually that can experience that and that sense of connection is really important. So we've got a couple of different tactics that we're trying. So every month I do a new hire, you know, class or video, you know, to, to kind of orient them, but also take questions. We also do an ask me anything meeting on video um, so that, you know, whatever, anything's game, whatever you're thinking uh, or wanting to know. And then we also have office hours where twice a week, we, you know, it's just an open forum for people to either 
ask questions, figure out who, you know, how do I find out how to do X, Y, Z. So it really is multifaceted, um, you know, do the, the typical, you know, monthly town hall and that sort of thing as well. But trying to find these small forums uh, where people can get to know each other and kind of find their people. You know, we always get we think people that are interested in the same sorts of things. Uh, we also have an internal social media uh, platform that the company uses. And we each department kind of uses that to amplify what's going on in their organization. But the employees can create their own groups. There's a Peloton group. There's you know, diversity inclusion. Um, there's all kinds of teams out there that really help people find ways to connect with others that have similar interests and experience. Awesome. We have a Peloton group too. Maybe we could do some sort of, some sort of competition. Jill, I saw you nodding your head as Jennifer was going through these. Are you doing similar things to create this culture at ASU? Yeah. So we do, we adopt a hybrid model. Um, so generally we're encouraging people to be in the office about, you know, 60% of the time for those in-person connections and work groups and then remote um, the other portions of the time. Um, we have done, I, I'd say our vision, uh, our version of um, your internal social is Slack is very active for us. Lots of, you know, work groups, but lots of fun groups too. You know, a spirit squad. We have a pet channel that's one of our most popular, you know, um, that just gives peeks into people's lives. I'd, I'd say the other thing that we do with um, the video conferencing and in interaction is in the past year, we started breaking those um, meetings up. And so intentionally, we will move into breakout rooms that we move that, like, if we're having a large discussion, we'll randomly break out the teams into groups of, of five or 10, have them have a small discussion and then come to the big, back to the big group. And that's been a real um, game changer for us because people then are able to interact on that smaller level um, versus just depending on the chat function or feeling confident to talk in front of a group of 75 people. So that's been very, very helpful for us. And then we've also just seen everybody learns different ways, communicates different ways. Um, so we also do, a, we use a tool called Slido quite a bit. Um, that's live polling, live Q&A, where people can post. They, at times, they can post anonymously. They can post as themselves. Um, they can upvote um, concepts. So those have been ways in which we've tried to connect the teams when they're remote. I'm hearing this key theme of communication in all different forms, in large settings, in ask me anything settings, in these breakout rooms where people can interact in smaller groups. I mean, I get it. We're like, any questions in a large all gathering? It's like, uh, but if we broke out into smaller uh, groups, people are more open to that. I want to shift a little bit and talk about your own careers and, and what's kept you or made you more open to a shift. And Jennifer, you changed roles during the pandemic. I'm interested in some of the factors that led you to coming into a new position and anything about your experience that would be relevant um, to those who are hiring senior leaders who might have different expectations or needs on their mind for potentially making a shift or a change. Yeah, I think um, I did change roles. So I after uh, being with AT&T for 32 years, I technically retired from them and then moved to DirecTV. So it was a bit of a, um, it was a big change because AT&T um, was selling you know, DirecTV and separating from DirecTV. So 
um, for me, it was a it's an easy decision because so much of what I have done leading up to this had prepared me for kind of the integration and separation and um, building a, a team, building a new organization. Um, so it was a good challenge for me. It was kind of a, you know, I am later in my career. I'm not ready to retire, but I like the idea of jumping into something um, new and starting this um, this organization and being able to put my fingerprint on it, but also create it with, with the team, um, learn more about what's happening in the video space. I think when you think about what happened um, with COVID, I mean, everyone was talking about what they were watching, what they were binging, you know, what, what's up next, you know, it's, it's a different purpose, you know, Jill, than what you talked about earlier, but it does give this escape, you know, and so how do we find a way to connect with our customers, make it easy for them when they want to, you know, whether they want to watch the news or whether they want to, you know, kind of escape from reality for a little while. So it was just a different, a different mix. And so for me to separate systems and technology from AT&T and then build the platforms that we want going forward. It's just a really unique opportunity for me and my team, building a corporate network, building all the enterprise functions, you know, making sure we handle and retain our customers while we're at it. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of hard work. Um, but it, what's been fun about it is building, building a new team. And so that's really what, what appealed to me. And, you know, it was a, probably an easier transition than had I been looking external and looking at all the companies out there. Um, it's just kind of a, a great opportunity presented itself. Um, and it felt like the right next step. I mean, certainly uh, direct TV entertainment, I mean, such a relevant industry right now. I'm wondering when you were building your team at direct TV and maybe you're still in the process of doing, I mean, it's always an ongoing process were you looking for anything different or did you approach it any differently than when you built your teams after being at AT&T for so long? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I did. So I ran uh, Cricket for a while. It was Cricket Wireless for a while. And what I learned there as much as anywhere is you, it's helpful to have people that have that experience and that have been in that role, those roles for a bit. It's also really important to get people from the outside. Um, we need new thinking. We also need you know, we need our employee base to look like um, our customer base. And and that, you know, they're not all, you know, white women, you know, and so can I relate to what we need? What's important? How do you want to get to your your content? What things matter? Um, So I think I, I, that was part of it. I I wanted to make sure that we had a really good cross-section of folks coming externally as well as, you know, the talent that I knew I could trust to build networks and build security and build platforms. Um, and we have a lot of folks that have been with Drug TV for a long time that, that had some more relevant experience for us as well. So I think it was really getting a good mix of diverse candidates, uh, diverse experience. And, you know, of course, in this virtual hiring world, you see resumes before you see people. Um, and so making sure that we're doing a good job of attracting a lot of different types of talent um, and looking at a diverse pool of, of who we're hiring so that we really do have an organization that that's reflective of our customer base. I want to lean into that. And I'm so glad that you brought this up because for people who watch View from the C-suite regularly, uh, I hope that you come to expect diversity from the panelists. I mean, we're really intentional about who we seek out to be a part of the show. But the way that it worked out for this episode with scheduling is 
we've ended up with three white women sitting here talking about talent. And we know that diversity is such an important part of recruiting. And I, I just want to name that, that we know that as white women, we have a certain amount of privilege in the work world that others don't share. I mean, at Wong Duty, you know, any creative industry, technology industries, you need diversity to have the best thinking. You need different perspectives around the table to push innovation. Um, one of the things I'm so excited about is that we just brought on Grace Francis, our new chief creative and design officer, and they're trans and non-binary. And as far as we know, they're the only trans non-binary leader in our industry, and they really hope to set an example for others. So we are continuously thinking about what it means to create an environment where people can be their authentic selves. And there are challenges that, that come with that. Jill, have your diversity and inclusion efforts changed over the past few years? Yeah, absolutely. We continue to evolve. Now, as the university and just in our university charter and mission, it, it literally is written in stone as part of our charter that we measure ourselves by whom we include, not who we exclude, and how they succeed. Uh, so we have always kind of embodied that spirit as an organization, but it doesn't mean that we don't have work to do um, and that we can't, that we can stop doing this work. And so in, in the past few years, we have even amped this up even further, looking at all functions of our university, looking at all systems that surround our university and how do those systems even operate and how do they uh, support an inclusive environment um, and where everyone is welcome and where, you know, it's representative of, of the world in which we live. Um, so we, we're doing that hard work on all levels from, you know, we're very fortunate of like, we've got a great knowledge base and academic base that is advancing this work. All of our faculty and staff as a working base is concentrating on this. Our administration is concentrating on this um, and really judging us by our actions, not just like what, what we're saying we're doing about it, but what, what progress are we making towards this? And, and for us too, it does mean that we look at all the pipelines. So often we talked earlier about the struggle of just right now in recruiting of some of the, the pools are smaller. They're smaller than in days past, which causes a challenge. Um, and if you don't really, if you're not really thoughtful about those pools, about how you're then at times engaging recruiters um, and or for us, we're building a pipeline. We have the ability to build new talent, you know, because there, there are populations that have been underrepresented in the professional space for some time. So we can't just expect that they're all going to magically be there when, when they haven't had those opportunities or they haven't been represented along the way. So our commitment is to build that pipeline too. So the work that we're doing now is, you know, our training programs, our student programs that move students into university employees, into professionals in the workspace uh, will help build that, that more representative pipeline long-term. It's amazing that in ASU itself, you have potentially your future talent pool and you can be really intentional about who you invite to become a part of 
the future of, of ASU, which I think is, is really, mm-hmm. is really great. Jennifer, have your diversity and inclusion efforts changed over the past few years? Are there specific initiatives that you now have that you didn't before? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think everybody's has changed. I think just some more clarity and some more awareness has kind of made a change happen, even if it wasn't, didn't start out as being intentional with some, some companies. Um, in some environments, what I would um, what I would say is again, we've got this. I think we're in this unique mode where we're building this a new team, a new company for the most part, and so being super conscious of what our culture is around. We care, we challenge, we deliver. That's you know keep it simple, but make it relatable. Um, I think that's where we started. Uh, I also think that uh, making sure we showcase kind of the employees that we do have that are, you know, diverse, not just in, you know, gender or race, you know, and in all kinds of ways in terms of what their backgrounds are, you know, um, LGBTQ, whether it's transgender, any, any of those things that people can figure out how to get comfortable with in a workplace. Maybe they haven't been around it, but just something as simple in our signatures, including our pronouns is a big change. It signals we're open to talking about it. Um, so I think, um, I think that's the, the awareness and then again, looking for the team members, um, to make sure that we can figure out how to get them connected and just using those diverse work groups, um, to, to help them show us what we're missing too. And to recognize we've got stuff to learn. We don't do everything right. We've got questions and, and making the environment. Okay. Um, you know, to, ask those questions and just figure out how, how do we better support? How do we better do it, do a better job But that pipeline that Jill mentioned is so important. We got to get people in the pipeline. You know, they're not going to necessarily just show up if they don't understand that we are a diverse company and an inclusive company. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned something as simple as pronouns, like on LinkedIn or in a signature, the message that that sends a potential employee is, is a really big and important message. I mean, that's such a small tactic that companies can take on. And I would imagine that the future workforce is looking for cues like that, that signal this is an inclusive and this is a welcoming environment. Wow. We are, we are in a really exciting time with so many changes in, in who we look for for talent. I mean, I myself used to have just sort of preconceived notions of like the different agencies I wanted to see on someone's resume or the type of experience that I wanted them to have. And I thought they would need to do the job well. And I feel so much more open-minded to backgrounds from people that I'm seeing, you know, part of out of necessity, us needing to open up the talent pool because we need people. Um, But then you hire someone who doesn't have that sort of cookie cutter experience that you're used to, and you watch them thrive and bring something so unique and unexpected to the table that it's really made me start thinking like all of these rules I used to have about resumes and talent and where they came from. I mean, you want curious people, you want passionate people, you want diversity. And when you start to lean into those types of qualities that people can add to your team, uh, I think it it's just going to create such a dynamic and really effective workforce. So it's it's exciting. I'm keeping my eye on the clock. I want to come over to audience questions in a few minutes, but I do really like leaning into some career questions. You're both successful women. I know a lot of people are wondering the secret to your success. Um, one of the questions I'd like to ask, I'll start with you, Jill, is something that you've learned 
outside of work that's helped you as a leader? Yeah, I think um, I'd say outside of work, it it was interesting. I was just in a leadership institute um, of we run those programs here at ASU and we we're having that conversation. Um, and I would say it, it's hard for me to say outside and, and inside, but I think just generally long-term views. Like if I think about family roots, things like that, and as you watch children grow, you have that opportunity to see them go from this very small baby to this grown adult and the choices you made along the way in guiding them. Um, that's changed my perspective too, as I've been at ASU, because it's been kind of that similar thing. I've seen things happen over the past 20 years that I go, but I made that decision 20 years ago or 10 years ago, knowing what happened now. Um, and so with that perspective, oftentimes I'm looking at, okay, let's, let's make sure we, should we be making the right now decision or the 10 year decision or the long-term decision? Um, and, and having that kind of point of view uh, just kind of helps um, me think through specifically because, you know, probably like Jennifer too, like we're dealing with installing systems and standards that last a very long time. Um, and so having that long-term view really, really makes a difference. I think that's great advice. Jennifer? Yeah, I, you know, I, and I would say, you know, when I was growing up, I played competitive softball. And so I think about, you know, how I, well, the importance of the team and what I learned from the team, um, you know, winning and losing with the team, you know, we all had our position to play, um, but it was also, sometimes we had to kind of compensate for each other, but, you know, I played third base. And so depending on where the ball was hit, it could be mine or the shortstop, right? We had to stay in constant communication to see who was going to take that. Um, it's, it's not that different actually, when you think about work and team, um, and the teams that you have good teams, understand their positions, they, they, you know, they play their role, but they also work together in that gray space and to figure out who's got it right now. Um, and you don't let anything drop. So I, I feel like that teamwork and that camaraderie and the, the, you know, knowing you don't want to let the team down and that you can count on them to have your back. Um, I, I think that's something that I've taken with me um, from my childhood. I love it. I also am just totally picturing you on third base and that visual is making my day. <laughs> what about sort of mentors or bosses? Um, Jill, is there a, a best boss you've ever worked for? And do you see in your leadership style some of the things that you've sort of held on to and are emulating? Yeah, I mean, I I think in my time with great leadership, what I've learned from others is to do it with empathy and to really, whenever you're um, approaching a challenge, stopping and saying, what, what is the problem that my counterpart is trying to solve? Let's figure that out first before, you know, because I'm in the brand business. At times I can be called the brand police. So like, you shall not do this with the brand. But that doesn't go over that well. Um, but if I can understand what is the problem that they're trying to solve, and, and this was, you know, one of my best bosses had always challenged me to do that. Of like, what is their point of view? What are they trying to solve? And then share with them what you're trying to solve and then create the solution together. Um, because so many times we, we tend to jump into the, well, we have to do it this way. 
Um, sometimes you don't have to. Um, sometimes it's just you're not using the same language. Other times when you look at both problems, you go, okay, we could solve the whole thing so much better when you take that point. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. These audience questions are really good. I've been both trying to listen and take a peek at what's happening over here, wondering if we should pop over. And yes, I want to pop over to the audience questions because thank you, audience. There's some fun things here. This one, I didn't even think about incorporating it into the conversation and I want to bring it in. This is from Marielle. Thank you, Marielle. Um, we haven't touched on this yet, but many people have started side hustles to make some extra cash or fulfill a passion. Do you feel that supporting this will help retain talent or does it worry you that they may make a jump into their side hustle full time? Ooh, who wants that? That's a good one. No, I don't know how I feel about that. I need to think about that. Well, right. I mean, I think my initial thought is I know a lot of people that have side hustles um, and sometimes the side hustle turns into their career. Um, and I think that's okay. I think, um, you know, some people, are meant to be here with us, you know, for a long time and some for a period of time. But I, as long as it's not conflicting with what you're doing, you know, at, at work and, and what, you know, your, uh, the, the work side of things. Um, I think it's interesting to see what lights people up, right? With what, what is that passion? Sometimes you don't tap into it fully at work. So if you find something, you know, that that's giving you that, um, I think it's really interesting the things that people choose to, to spend their time on. And yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm often excited by what they choose. I hate to lose anybody if they decide to move into something, but people that find the passion, I mean, you can't do anything other than be really happy for them. And I'd say that we see that a lot in the marketing and creative business, specifically in areas of writing and design video, like we see those side hustles. Um, and so, yeah, I agree. We, we tend to support it as long as it doesn't end up, hey, I can't do this project because of my side hustle. Um, I, I'd say the other thing that has been changing for us is the relationship that we've been having with some of our team. So we have more independent contractors than we have ever had. Um, and so in some cases, we are their side hustle or they, they are a small you know, they're an individual that's doing multiple side hustles and they're doing that because they want to maintain a certain type of lifestyle and they, they want to move around the country while, while they work. They want to, um, they want to touch different industries, but that has been a significant change for us in that we said, okay, you know, we're okay with that. And so, like I said, we have more independent contractors filling roles that used to be full-time staff, um, than we ever have. And again, it also helps us kind of manage the, there, there's a challenge with us having too much remote work, things like that. And so by having contractors, we can give that flexibility a little bit more, um, but it also just energizes the team. They're predictable enough. They're with us enough that they feel like team members, but truly they're contractors. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I think anything that you're passionate about outside of work is going to change your attitude. It's probably going to change what you bring to your side hustle, your day job, because you're happy and you're fulfilled in some way. I mean, I'm thinking of like some members on my team who are like really into gaming and how now talk of the metaverse is getting infused into so many conversations we're having. And I'm like, Ooh, that side hustle can actually now be tapped 
to come in and <laughs> inform some of the questions that our clients are having around Web3 and where we're all heading. So I, I do think that it, it's really an interesting dynamic. Um, Jennifer, I have a question from you. I really like this question from Diksha. Um, can you share one of the most difficult challenges you faced during either your AT&T tenure or currently at DirecTV as a woman leader, as a woman in tech? We know there are so few women in tech. How you have overcome it? Um, do you feel as a woman you need to prove more as compared to others? That's a hard question. I would say over time, my answers probably gotten a lot different. Um, I don't know that I can think of a really tough challenge that I can pinpoint. It was just because I was a woman. Um, I do remember many times being the only woman in the room. Um, but I will say coming up through te the technology team, um, there I had the benefit of a lot of women around me. Um, and I feel like we did really good work together and, but what I, what I did see is there was a bit of a ceiling as terms of what we, you know, where we, where we went. And I think that also has changed over, over the years. You know, what I think about early in my career where there were all kinds of advice about not getting too emotional and, you know, cause you could see people shutting down if your passion came through or your emotion came through. Um, and then now what that looks like is, we need to smile more, you know, kinds of kinds of things. And to me, that's really where I get um, a little fired up because I probably should smile some more, uh, but we don't talk to men that way. And, and so how do we set the right example, bring women and men along in a healthy, inclusive way uh, and not make it about male, female. But I, I would say the challenge that I, that I probably see to now most in my career is, is not being able to figure out why when I looked at certain leadership panels, I just saw men um, and, and not and feeling like that isn't getting the best of kind of what we have to offer. Just like making sure we've got, you know, men, women, people of color, you know, all the, all the spectrum that we need to really run a, a, a solid company. So I can't think of one particular aspect of it, but just an awareness that as a woman, maybe you don't have to um, over deliver, but I think you have to be really aware of how you're representing things and how you're bringing people along with you. Yep, I can relate. Jill, I have a question for you from Renee, which is really about your industry. It's really about sort of the future of education. And I think it's something important to touch on. Due to the, to the pandemic, both enrollment and attendance in all levels of school are down. And there is a lot of discussion. Like, will we return to where we were? We're will our children need, need a university degree to be able to get a future job? Are you thinking of different pipelines in the face of this? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so what's unique about ASU is that we are very committed to the lifelong learning um, pathway. And we actually have doubled down on that concept in the past couple of years of even standing up a whole uh, portion of our institute institution called Learning Enterprise that really is delivering education at all stages of life from eight to 80. Uh, we run charter schools um, that have a 100% college going rate, but also they, they are 
uh, Title IX schools. Um, so, so we're proving a model of how you can deliver education all the way through. Um, at ASU, our enrollment continues to grow as we continue to um, adjust to what the market needs. You know, the truth is, is that college degrees are still very much needed. The, the job stress in the areas of engineering, bioscience, biotechnology, like we naturally are not building the workforce that we have the demand for. So as a university, we're figuring out how to make sure that still happens. Um, but we're also looking at programs that may not always lead to a degree. So I always say that college might not be for everyone, but learning is for everyone. And so at times we're trying to unlock the resources of a major research university and make them accessible to a broader base. Um, and so that if you're in high school, if you're um, just wanting to explore a topic, um, you're able to access that type of information. Now, eventually, what we hope is as you access those, we're giving you the building blocks that then once you decide, yes, a degree is something I want, you actually already have those building blocks in place that's going to help you get to that degree faster. So definitely reconceptualizing all of it. Um, I would even just encourage all of you, uh, we've, we've done things as far as we um, partner with uh, a group called Crash Course, right? Any of you who have teenagers, college students, they probably have used Crash Course in their curriculum. Um, we have partnered up with YouTube and Crash Course to deliver Study Hall that delivers a series of fundamental courses in college that people need uh, that they can, um, you know, again, master the skill. And then we're study, We're just launching a new series about uh, going to college. What, what, what does it mean to go to college? And why is it important to go to college now? So we're, we're looking at all of those things, of even just looking at very different ways to convey the message. You don't see very many um, higher ed in institutions partnering with YouTube and YouTube creators to get education out there. But that's one example of how we're reaching out. Thank you. And thank you for that great question, Renee. There's a question from Stephanie that I, I think is interesting. We've talked on this show a lot about change and change management and making people feel comfortable or at least inviting them on the journey for change and dealing with sort of the, the barriers and the worries that come along with it. I mean, I remember when we were acquired by Infosys, which was almost four years ago, retention was the biggest thing on my mind because even if change is good, which it absolutely has been, it's scary. And so if you're going undergoing a big organizational change, how do you manage retention and culture during that? Yeah, I would say there's not any one way to do it. You got to have multiple tactics. Different things work for different people. Um, it, there's a huge aspect of it that's communication because, you know, when we start talking about change, usually people are still running really fast. They're thinking about what they have to do and and they hear you talking about it, but they don't really know what it's going to look like for them. And behavior change is super hard to, 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 um, to make it happen because people are just, let's change X, Y, Z instead of let's really look at this differently and figure out how we work differently with different teams. Uh, so that takes even more communication, even more connection, um, even, even more forums to talk to people and listen to people probably more than anything. Um, 
and it's a huge time investment. And I think quite often when we go through these change management efforts, we underestimate the time because we just know we need to get there. Um, and if you don't bring people with you, that's where you're going to start hearing and seeing people get a little bit out of step and you can tell people are not feeling um, like they're right in the center of things and feeling like what they do is important. And then that's when you start losing them. And that's when they start looking for other, other positions. Thank you, Jill, anything to build on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think at ASU, we, we call it the innovation mindset um, and, or we, we talk about, we build a culture um, that has to be comfortable with ambiguity because our institution is constantly changing, even from direction from the top of our, our president. You know, it is a philosophy of design, test, redesign, test, redesign. So we're constantly changing. So it's, it, it is the true constant here in the issue. Um, so in some cases, we have to work to get um, our whole base very comfortable with that as an institutional cultural value. Um, but it can be can be tough. We're going through a reorganization right now. Um, you know, why not? We just came out of a pandemic. We just have the great resignation. Let's do a reorg. Yeah, let's do that. Um, but it's just the reality. Um, and so we really have to work through it as being as empathetic as we can, moving through the change and helping people through the change. But also just understanding that some at sometimes it's going to be a little too much for an individual player and. Our, our number one priority is the human. Um, and so if, if that change is not for them, there, there is meaningful work in getting them to where they need to be too. Um, and, it, you know, balancing that is always, is always hard. It is. I promised we'd end on time. There are so many other great questions that I would love to get into, but we are at time and I, think it's a really great place to end talking about the human. I mean, we started talking about talent. What is talent? Talent, <laughs> talent is humans. They're humans we want to work with. They're humans who we want to feel fulfilled when they're working with us. And this has been such an inspiring conversation. I've made some notes of my own. Long duty friends, we're going to have some breakout rooms coming, <laughs> coming your way. Um, Jill and Jennifer, thank you so much for your insights to this audience. Thank you for these questions. I mean, you are really so thoughtful and some, some really Really rich discussion came out of your questions. I hope everybody leaves here feeling as inspired as I do. And that is a wrap on episode nine of View from the C-Suite. I look forward to seeing you next month when the conversation continues. To find out more about Wong Duty's work transforming businesses through human experience, go to wongduty.com. If you're a woman in the C-suite and would like to be a guest on this show, please reach out to me at womenleaders at wongduty.com.